Let us pray. Our most gracious Father, take these words that You have given us and implant them within us. Water them with Your Spirit and cause them to grow forth in abundant fruit. Guide us through this season of Lent with these words upon our hearts, knowing that You are for us through Christ. Knowing that we cannot be separated from You. For what You have done for us is to save us and renew us and transform us into Your people and to give us Your faith. To give us faith in Your works. And so enable us to cling to that truth throughout this season and to be refreshed and built up by You. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Weeks like this, it's hard to pick a particular text to preach on when you have three, even four, counting the psalm, powerful text that lay upon our hearts the truth of how God works, the truth of what God has done, the truth of what He is doing. The last verses of Our passage from Genesis 22, I think, are deeply important for us for shaping everything that we're thinking about this day. For there in verse 14 it says, So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. But what is the provision? What is the provision that Abraham is thinking about in that moment? And that moment, that provision is sacrifice. And that moment, the provision is God providing that which He requires before His face. For that whole story is a testing of Abraham. God telling him to sacrifice His only Son, His beloved Son. To take Him to the land of Moriah, to go up on the mountain. What we later on discover is that Mount Moriah is where the temple is ultimately built. That is the place that God chooses to lay before the people the sacrifices. To call them to give to Him the sacrifices day in and day out. To give to Him the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And there on that mount, He calls Abraham to sacrifice His own son. And Abraham is ready to do it. For this is, even though it is the son of promise, the writer to the Hebrews reminds us that Abraham must have reckoned that this God who could bring forth this son from him, the son of promise, could raise him even from the dead, though it had never been heard of, someone being raised from the dead. For Abraham understood the power and the strength of God, that God could do what he needed to be done to fulfill his promises. And so, while there may be conflict within Abraham, there is still that sense of faith, that assurance that God will accomplish His promises of making a great nation and bringing forth one who will bless this world through this Son. And so he is willing to give up his very son Isaac to God. But in that moment, God calls forth and tells him not to sacrifice him. And Abraham looks and he sees a ram that has been provided, fulfilling Abraham's words as they traveled up the mount. 
When Isaac points out, it's like, we don't have an animal for sacrifice. There is no ram for sacrifice. There is no lamb here. And Abraham says, God will provide. And here in that moment, Abraham and Isaac see God fulfilling that word. The Lord will provide. Yahweh gives what is necessary. And I think that's what we must cling to this day, that God will give what is necessary and He calls us to walk in faith of that giving. And we see that taken up by Jesus here in the Gospel of St. Mark. Right before all of this has happened, right before Jesus is teaching about this rejection that He is going to go through and this suffering and this death, the disciples through Peter have just confessed that He is the Messiah. All the way back in verse 27, while the disciples are in the villages of Caesarea Philippi, He asked them, who do people say that I am? And it comes down to Peter saying, you are the Christ. But Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone. He wants them to keep this to themselves right now. And he immediately begins to teach. He teaches that the Son of Man must suffer. And we see here that Jesus must take up His cross to deal with the sin of the world. First and foremost, Jesus' calling is to deal with sin. To be a sacrifice. That is the calling of the Messiah as a suffering servant. Isaiah 53, explaining that this suffering servant will take the sins of the people upon Himself. And through Him, God will bless the people. God will remove their sins from before them. And so Jesus begins to teach them clearly and plainly what is to happen in Jerusalem. And that is something for us to remember here in verse 31. He began to teach them. He had not made it explicit that the Messiah would suffer and die in this way. But here, now that they recognize Him as the Messiah, He begins correcting their understanding of what the Messiah is and what the Messiah will do. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Hear that sharp word, must. This is a divine command. This is a divine requirement of the Messiah. The suffering, rejection, and death is not something that might happen but it is something that is required. It is the calling of the Father upon the Son to go out and suffer. It's a required event to bring about redemption for the people. And it's not just suffering and rejection. It is to be killed, to be put to death, to completely die. He gives them that assurance, and after three days, to rise again. Which, of course, the disciples don't know what to do with that. Let alone the death of their beloved friend Jesus, who they now recognize as the Messiah, who they finally began to have a little bit of clearness and understanding. They've now declared Him to be the Messiah, the one who will be king over Israel. Now He starts talking about suffering and rejection and dying. They don't know how to handle that. And then He says, and and the Son of Man will be raised back to life. We've all heard that before. I've talked about that where the concept of a single man being raised from the dead was just outside of the context of what they could understand. They all knew about the general resurrection. And the disciples believed in that general resurrection. Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, believed in the general resurrection that God would raise up the faithful in the end. But for one man ahead of all of them to be raised from the dead was something That was just outside of their understanding. It was too grand of a concept that the Messiah would have to die to begin with, but that God could then renew His life and give Him new life and raise Him back up into a new kind of life where He would then be enthroned forever. That's just something they can't comprehend. 
And so what happens as he's speaking this very plainly, there is rebuking that occurs because of that. Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him for saying these things. Think about that. The disciple Peter who has just said, you are the Christ, then turns to rebuke the Messiah, to tell the Messiah that he's wrong. But that word rebuke is the same word that Mark uses over and over to speak of Jesus' reaction to the demons. Jesus rebukes demons. He speaks with authority over them. And here Peter exerts authority over Jesus. He exerts authority against Jesus' teaching in the very same way that Jesus exerts authority against the demons. And so Peter rebukes him. I'm sure saying something along the lines of, this can't be. You're the Messiah. The Messiah does not die. But Jesus sees that the other disciples are gathering around and they're hearing Peter's rebuke. In fact, maybe they all have colluded and Peter is their representative again here in this moment. That they are all so shocked that they have Peter stand up and say, don't do this. This isn't the calling. But then, seeing this, Jesus looks at Peter and he in turn rebukes Peter. He speaks with authority against Peter. He reminds Peter of who is the Messiah and who isn't. And he reminds Peter of what kind of words these are. There in verse 33, he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here Peter has embraced a satanic thought of finding fulfillment for the Messiah without suffering. Think of all the times and all the people that Jesus confronts throughout the Gospels and how He rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes. Never once does He call them Satan. Even though they are, in a way, standing in the way of what Jesus is trying to do. But here he gives Jesus a sterner rebuke than he gives to any of the Pharisees, to any of the Sadducees, to any of the scribes. He calls Peter Satan. For Peter is embracing satanic thoughts. He is embracing a satanic idea that the Messiah doesn't have to suffer. The Messiah must not suffer. And so Jesus says, get out of my way. Get behind me. Step aside from the path that the Father has laid before me. You are in the way. You are becoming a stumbling block, O Peter, who is to be the rock. That's what Jesus says. That's what Matthew records of Jesus in his gospel account of this. And on one hand, Jesus is, or Peter is the rock that the church will be built on in light of his confession of Jesus as to Christ. But then he turns and says... You are being a stumbling block, Peter. Your rock that is to be a foundation has become a block of stumbling if you persist in this rebuke. So get out of the path. Step aside. Move behind me. And get rid of your thoughts and your misunderstandings and messiahship and learn to embrace by following me what the Father has called me to do. For Jesus to not go to the cross would be to not endure pain, to not endure heartache, to not endure suffering and death. He would only get glory. If He avoids the cross, He can try to pursue only glory, but that is not the calling of the Messiah. The Messiah is to walk through the suffering, to walk through the death, to walk through the cross, the shame of it all. Because sin is being laid upon Him. And as He dies, sin's power dies over us. And then Jesus is raised into glory. Through the cross, there comes glory. Through the suffering, there comes glory. 
And that is the path that God lays forth for Jesus Himself. Despite the shame, Jesus knows the joy of salvation that will be wrought by His death and His resurrection. For He knows God's ultimate plan to not leave Him dead in the grave. You will not leave your Holy One to see corruption, the psalmist says today. Which means that the Holy One must be raised back to life and to incorruption. To drop away the mortality, to embrace the immortality. To have immortality forever. To be glorified into a new kind of life. That is what Jesus is to do. That is what Peter is resisting, but... As I said, Jesus rebukes him and tells him to step aside. And then Jesus turns and calls the crowds. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you are to follow Jesus as as Jesus has called his disciples to do, as he tells Peter to get behind him and to throw away those ideas of Satan. Now Jesus says, follow me. Follow me on this path that the Lord has laid before me. And as I am embracing the cross that is placed before me and carrying it toward that place, you too, you likewise must deny yourself. You must deny what you want to do in life. You must deny what you think is your calling and embrace the calling of the Lord. Embrace this walking through death, this walking through sacrifice, this walking through suffering. For that is what happens when you follow Jesus. We don't all suffer in the same way. We don't all have the same kinds of deaths. We don't all have the same kinds of struggles. But nonetheless, in our taking up the cross, we are embracing those struggles. We are embracing the tension that must be created between the new man and the old man of resisting what the old man wants, resisting the sinfulness of the old man. Putting it to death over and over and over upon that cross we have taken up. And the new man rising to life, much like baptism. As we remember our baptisms, we are drowning the old man in that holy water of baptism. As Martin Luther told of those who followed him, when you get up in the morning, cross yourself and say, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and thus remember your baptisms and put to death that old man then and there. And recite the Apostles' Creed in the Lord's Prayer to remind you of whose you are, to remind you of who you belong to now. For Jesus says, the one who would want to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for the sake of the gospel and for Jesus' sake will save it. It seems very ironic that Jesus says, take up your cross, for everyone in that hearing knows what the cross is for. The cross is for nothing but death. The cross means death. The cross means suffering into death. We might say something along the lines of, Get up and go stand in the firing line. Go stand and be ready to be executed if you want to follow Jesus. Be ready for death to be a part of your walk now. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You see, you can pursue all of these things in this world and build up your wealth, build up your glory for yourself. But in the end, you still die. And if you're pursuing your own self in the end, when you die, then you lose everything. You don't enter into heaven. You don't enter into God's joyful presence when you have rejected Him in everything you've done throughout your life. However, if you lay down your life for His sake, 
If you submit all of who you are to Him and continually confess your inability to do that on your own and continually walk in that path, you will be walking in faith. You'll be walking in trust in what Jesus has done. Taking seriously His promises of new life. Taking seriously His promise of resurrection that He has already received. And if one has received it who is the Son of God, who promises to give it, how will it not be given for us? And that's what St. Peter, St. Paul speaks of in his passage from Romans. This being given over to death constantly, over and over and over, dying more and more and more and being put under persecution constantly. All things turning against us. But he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? For look at what this God has done. He did not spare His Son, but He gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? And if this Son is given up for your sake, how will the Father not give you all that He has promised? For He gave His Son for you. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So despite your sin, who can charge you with guilt? Only God judges and God gives justification to those who are in Christ. Thus, who can condemn us? Jesus is the one who has died. More than that, He was raised back to life. And now, even more than that, the unbelievable thing is, He is at the right hand of God and interceding for us. You see, not only did Jesus die for our condemnation, He's been raised up to life. And in that being raised up to life, He then ascends to be with the Father in heaven in order that He can then intercede for us who are struggling, who are suffering, who are enduring death after death after death in this world. Paul points us to the foundation of Jesus going to the cross for us. The foundation is that Jesus embraces the cross. He embraces the suffering. He embraces the death on our behalf. And then He is raised and ascends and intercedes for us. How can God not save us now from these very things that Jesus endured? In verse 35, Paul goes on to say, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That verse from the Psalms is from Psalm 44, 22. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That verse is in the middle of a psalm of lament and complaint. The psalmist is writing about some moment in Israel's history when everything is going wrong, when the people have been striving to do all that God has called them to do, and yet suffering and pain and struggle still afflicts them. We have followed what You called us to do. We have confessed our sinfulness. We have made the sacrifices You called for. We have striven to be faithful to Your promises and yet we are being killed and are like sheep led to slaughter. Why is it that tribulation and distress and famine and persecution, nakedness, danger and sword have come upon us, O God? Why do these things afflict us? And of course, someone hearing that who's steeped in those psalms might recall the final verse, Arise, O Lord, and show us Your mercy. But how does Paul respond to that verse? How does Paul respond to this idea that, of this question of these things separating us from Christ? He says, No. 
Nay, never. These things cannot separate us because we are more than conquerors of those things. You see, He takes that arise, O Lord, have mercy on us, and applies that to what Christ does. This is the Lord arising on His people's behalf that as they are being slaughtered, as they are being persecuted, as they are enduring distress and famine and danger and sword, as they endure all those things in this world, and even lament of those things and ask God, why, why? Paul lifts that up and brings it to his logical conclusion that if Christ has died for us and been raised, if He endured suffering, then we will conquer those things because He has conquered them for us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We conquer nakedness. We conquer tribulation. We conquer distress and persecution through Jesus. Though we endure it, though we are persecuted, though we are broken down by it, and though we may struggle against it, in Christ, at the end, we will utterly, totally conquer it through Christ. Nothing can separate us because we are greater conquerors in Jesus. We conquer the things of evil and creation, those things that bring suffering because we are in Jesus. And that is how we respond. We conquer those things. We do not let those things remove our eyes from our Savior. And so in doing that, we are taking up our cross. We are enduring the sufferings of this world for Jesus' sake. As we look to Jesus' cross, we embrace our own and die through our own because Jesus died for us. And in Jesus, we have died as well. And we've been raised and given new life. And thus, Paul can say in verse 38, For I am sure, I have absolute confidence, I am fully trusting that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Though we are being killed constantly, God does arise and bring mercy through Jesus. And because of that mercy, we conquered that which would try to conquer us. We conquered that which would try to overpower us. That nothing in all of creation... Not even death itself, not even angels or rulers, life, things present, nor things to come. Nothing can separate us from God when we are looking to the cross. As we look to that cross, as we die to ourselves and let death come upon us from the world, in Christ we conquer it. In Christ we overcome it. In Christ we are redeemed and saved because we are building on what Christ has done. We are depending upon what Christ has done. We have confidence in the things of Christ Himself. That I am sure that these things cannot separate us. For I am firmly confident in what God has done in Jesus for us. And thus, the one who embraces what Jesus has done will embrace what comes. Will embrace suffering and rejection and death for nothing is promised to us. We are not promised an easy life. Jesus constantly points out that if they hate the Son, they will hate you. That we are called to embrace Jesus' cross and thus embrace our own. Because He will take up His cross to deal with our sin and bring redemption. And so He calls us to walk that very path toward death ourselves. So that the life He has won for us may take root in us. You see, that life of Jesus doesn't fully bloom until we begin to really embrace the suffering, that we embrace the death that we are called to each day, that begins with the death of the old man in us. 
And as we turn our hearts toward Jesus, we are putting to death that old man. As we let our affections be renewed by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, as our love for God is increased by the work of the Spirit who pours God's love into us, we will begin walking that path through suffering. We will embrace the suffering that comes. We will embrace the denying ourselves. I appreciate watching a video from a Roman Catholic priest, Father Mike Schmidt. As he talks about this taking up the cross, he reminds us of a very important fact that just because it's hard does not mean it's holy. That as we think about taking up our crosses, it's not on account of it being a hardship that makes it holy. It's on account of God calling you to that that makes it holy. So you might be in a situation where there is one thing that you would like to do that seems perfectly reasonable. But then there's this other thing that you don't want to do. And so you think, well, holy things are always hard, so I'm going to choose this thing that I hate and I don't want to do instead of this thing that is perfectly fine. (coughs) It's okay to choose that which is good in God's eyes and pursue that. It's when you make that the center of all that you're doing that it becomes sinful. When you lose faith in God's promises that the good thing can become sinful for you turn the good towards yourself instead of outward toward God. And so just because it's hard does not make it holy. What makes it holy is God's calling for you to embrace it. And so in that sense, we must die to ourselves and look at the things that we do and ask, Oh God, does this bring you glory? Oh God, does this place me on the path that you have called me to? For I want to embrace the cross you have called me to. That I can deny my old man and deny his desire for glory. So that the new man can embrace the true glory that comes through suffering. That comes through following Jesus. And so we are called to walk on that path to receive the life of Jesus through His death on the cross. That we face those things set before us because we are united to God. We are willing to embrace suffering from the world. We are willing to embrace everything on behalf of Christ because Christ is the foundation, not our faith. Christ Himself and our faith looks to the one who is the foundation. His work is what saves us. His work is what enables us to endure. His work is what is paving the path forward for us. Our certainty relies only on Jesus. Our trust should rely only on Jesus. And when we walk upon that path, we'll see the fulfillment of what Psalm 16.12 said today. You shall show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that is where embracing the cross will lead us. Embracing the cross that will bring death will put us on the path of life. And it will put us into the path of God's presence. And there we find fullness of joy. There we find the God who has saved us through Jesus. There we find the Jesus who took up a cross for us so that we can be saved. And so there is joy in embracing the death of the cross. Because through that death comes the new life of God comes the new life of Jesus for us. And so may we be encouraged and built up to walk this path. To not be like Peter who rebukes Jesus, but to receive the rebuke of Jesus, to walk behind Him, and to continue on this path toward the cross with Him, and to die with Him. To die to ourselves and to be raised into that new life that Jesus pours upon us through His own death and resurrection. And so may we this Lent walk this path and be changed evermore 
embracing the new life given to us in Jesus alone. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.